Hello, this is Dina Metzger, and I am the author of a new novel, A Reign of Nightbirds, and I have uh, the extraordinary opportunity to speak with Nina Simons, who is an award-winning social entrepreneur and visionary thinker. I think I want to emphasize the visionary thinker. Uh, she co-founded she co-founded Bioneers with her husband and partner, Kenny Ausubel, and she has helped to lead the organization through 23 years of identifying, gathering, and disseminating breakthrough innovations that reveal a positive and life-honoring future that's within our grasp today. So, Nina, when I think about you, I think about the courage and determination it takes to um, to hold it in these times uh, the vision of a positive and life-honoring future and to say that it's within our, our grasp. So that tells me um, how much wisdom you carry and how hard it is to carry wisdom. Dina... Hearing your words makes me want to cry <laughs> because um, I'm so aware with you and in the beauty of the book that you wrote of how precariously we are living on the edge at this moment. And as I was anticipating getting to speak with you, the question that kept coming to me today was, how shall we live? In this time when life on earth as we know it um, is changing so rapidly and is in such danger. And, uh, and I find myself, I'm, I'm so inspired by the work that you do, Dina, and how you have held to be so intently focused toward healing um, in the many decades leading up to this time when uh, uh, it's, it's a little hard for me to imagine a time when healing was more needed on more levels than it is right now. I, I can't imagine another time either. Well, maybe right after World War II, but, uh, but I don't know. I don't know. Oh. Um, it was very different. I don't know that World War II ever ended, really. Yeah, yeah. It sort of went into hibernation as, and has now resurfaced. Or maybe not, because I think World War II for me um, was uh, the Holocaust and yeah. the bomb. And right. um, the Holocaust is happening all over the world. Yes. And Fukushima and Hanford and Chernobyl and, 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 and. Um, yeah, you're right. Right? Yep. So yep. Yeah. that mind that created the bomb or that could create torture or that could create the weapons we have, that mind is among us. Oh, and I absolutely. think... Your work, my work, our work, the work that's going on in our many interlocking communities, uh, 
that work has to do with changing our minds. That's what I think. Well, I totally agree. You know, my my husband is currently working on a film that's called The Changing of the Gods. And uh-huh. one of the things that they say in the film is worldviews create worlds. And um, as I was reflecting about your newest book, A Reign of Nightbirds, today, I was, I was reflecting that you did something so difficult to do so beautifully, in my humble estimation, which was that you took this massive crisis that we face in terms of climate change and all of the ramifications of our altering the atmosphere and polluting the air and water and earth of this beautiful planet, Um, you took that giant issue which has such a tendency for people to conceptualize and think of as outside themselves, and you personalized it, and you made it intimate. And I just loved how you did that. I, I really felt like reading your book, I just got picked up by the scruff of my neck and carried into um, a story, a love story, that's about both love of earth, love of life, and love of ourselves and each other, which of course I believe are fractals of all the same love. Right. And, you know, and you, and you um, invited me as a reader into this changing worldview in such an intimate and beautiful way. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I wanted everyone who read the book to know and feel Sandra and Terence. Sandra, a non-Indigenous climatologist, and Terence, a, a native climatologist. And when the two of them meet again after knowing each other professionally, he was the chair of her department when she was studying, when they meet again and their hearts open to each other, the earth and the environment and everything that we're suffering came right in with it. Because I don't think you can open your heart to one part of the world and not open to the other. But I also have to say that I had nothing to do with it. These characters came and they told their story and I took dictation because I don't know how to write this book. (laughs) I didn't know how to write it. But it happened, and I was often awed by it Um, and grateful and uh, kept struggling, you know, to find the way to tell it uh, over and over and over again, changing it again and again, and then suddenly, sort of like form coming out of chaos, it appeared. Well, Dina, you know, I hear you, and I don't believe that that kind of transmission is possible without um, the kind of life you've led and the practice that you've been in for so long and the way that you have so courageously turned toward every challenge that life has brought you. And, and so for me, you've been a role model in many ways as a feminist, as an earth lover, as a, as a woman who is 
inspired and moved by indigenous wisdom and, and sees it as a way forward. Um, and as someone who consistently sort of faces the tough stuff um, and is not cowed by fear. And so thank you for modeling that for me. Well, um, I think we model it uh, for each other. Um, and uh, I'm deeply moved by your incredible devotion to the earth, to the future, to indigenous wisdom, and um, uh, and to women. Thank you. Thank uh, you. <laughs> I'm just following the path each step as best I know how, you know. <laughs> That's what we got to do, right? That is exactly um, what we have to do. And I'm so moved by uh, the introduction or the forward that you wrote to uh, Ilarian Mikuliev's book, Wisdom Keeper, uh, mm -hmm. where you speak so sincerely and lyrically about what he is bringing to us. And, you know... You may be the only other person that I know that speaks comfortably about traditional environmental knowledge, uh, tech, which is the knowledge that comes from indigenous people, and that you have understood that we are lost, but that there is a wisdom tradition or wisdom traditions on the planet, and that we could align with them again in order to save the planet uh, is, is an extraordinary uh, calling forth for all of us. Well, you know, I was lucky enough, Dina, to learn about traditional ecological knowledge when uh, back in the late 80s when uh, we were working to develop a company called Seeds of Change. And it was really before we even started Bioneers. And I started learning from all these indigenous farmers and learning that they knew how to grow crops in very little water. And they knew how to breed seed stocks to become more water resistant. And they knew so many things that it was so obvious to me even then that we would all need to know in the future. And thank you for that compliment. That means a lot to me coming from you. But you know, I, I have had many indigenous mentors and teachers, of course. And I was visiting one of them, a woman named Jeanette Armstrong, who's from the Okanagan people up in British Columbia. And I was visiting her last fall and I went to the university where she teaches and as we were driving there together, she said, Nina, I want you to speak at the opening of my traditional ecological knowledge class. <laughs> and, and I got terrified. And I said, oh, no, Jeanette, I don't know enough to do that. And she said, yes, you do. And my <laughs> students need to hear it from you. Yes. And it was such a profound teaching, Dina, because I stood up there and I realized I do know a lot. And...
them through millennia and and that many are really willing to teach and share them with us. It's just a, it was a wonderful reflection of what I'd learned over all these years. So thank you. Oh, well, you're reminding me of a time when I was in Liberia and I was with the women who had actually overthrown the military rule uh, by going out and um, collecting all the guns from their brothers and uncles and fathers and sons and saying, we will not put up with this uh, anymore. And so I was standing with them and I realized that they didn't know how profound their action was and how influential it could be in the world. And there was the fortune and misfortune. The misfortune that it would matter that a white woman was telling them this and the fortune that I could see it. And, and I think perhaps that's what both of us are about, that we see things that other people in our culture uh, don't want to see the wisdom of these other ways of knowing and, and living. And we see it and we're willing to say, yes, traditional ecological knowledge. Yes, grassroots indigenous peace building methods. Uh, yes, indigenous ways of knowing, earth-based, spirit-based ways of knowing can save the planet. And for me, most of the ways that we are living in Western culture and um, in the United States now, perhaps particularly in these last months, uh, we're not on a path of survival. We're on a path of destruction. And, um, you know, the word, I, I think you use violence a, a lot, a violent culture, a greedy culture. Uh, there's a third word I don't remember, um, which you use speak about. Um, and so then that question that you asked at the beginning, how then do we live? Yeah. And so what are you thinking, Nina? How then do well, we live? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to add one thing before to, to our stream here, before I Please. go on that tangent, which is, um, as I listen to you, Dina, what I also know we share in common is a deep, deep love, not only of the natural world in its broadest sense, but of our, of our um, kindred animals, oh, especially, yes. I know you with the elephants, <laughs> you know, and I have a particular, I adore elephants, and I have a particular affinity around whales and uh -huh. dolphins and porpoises, you know, but but many creatures, there is a way that I think, you know, we have lessons all around us. And some of them are coming from indigenous peoples, from the old growth cultures who've been here so much longer um, than many of us have, um, or at least on North America. And, uh, and then 
what about the species that have been here so much longer? And, and the way that there's something about empathy and compassion that I want to add in here because I, I find that um, one of the things about this crazy moment, turbulent moment in the world, where, as you say, the violence and the greed and the, um, well, the destruction is accelerating, is that it's also true at the same time that um, the veil between the worlds is very thin. Yes. And that it, it feels like it's possible to get information from the dream time and from our intuition and from our um, animal kin and, and from our ancestors. Um, if only we have the presence to ask and to listen, you know. So one of the things that uh, I've been finding, this will segue nicely into the question, how then shall we live? You know, one of the ways that I find that I learn, Dina, is that I hear something and it lodges inside me and it becomes like a mantra um, for a period of time. And I heard this from a Peruvian teacher who was talking about his Andean heritage and his name is Arkan Lashwala. And what he spoke about was he said, in the Andean civilization, which lasted for 40,000 years, there was a very particular way that the leaders were chosen. And they were chosen by the people for those who were the best at receiving guidance. And I thought, wow. That is so different than our current paradigm. Mm. Mm. You know, the best at receiving guidance. And that makes me think of how you receive guidance from the elephants and how, you know, my beloved colleague Terry Tempest Williams gets Mm. guidance from the prairie dogs and the birds Mm -hmm. and how, right, and how Joanna Macy gets guidance. I mean, we all get guidance from different directions in different ways. Right. And there is no one path. But what if our leaders were chosen as the best at receiving guidance? So I find for myself that there's this delicate dance for me in this time between feeling the incredible grief of what's being lost and, and the alarm at how rapidly um, our institutions and some of our democratic principles and and uh, some of our justice tenets and ethos seem to be crumbling and under attack. And at the same time, um, really working to stay centered in myself, to remember my primary allegiance to life, to uh, invest in my love of people, of women, of the natural world, um, of serving the vitality and the biodiversity of life, and uh, to taking really good care of myself as an instrument of healing, because I see so many brilliant instruments burning themselves out with overreactivity and overactivity. That's the best I know at the moment. It's a very, it feels like a very large um, vision. And 
I'm thinking about how I asked that question about how then shall we live, which you touched on. And so there's a beautiful resonance because when I am aware of the guidance that's coming in all the ways that you mentioned, from from the animals, from the wind, from story, sort of I find myself in in a narrative I could not have created myself, and events are happening which indicate some other influence, um, or dreams come, um, and these fill me with wonder, and um, and I know that I didn't create these scenarios, and so I say, what is the true nature of the world when such things happen and how then shall we live and well, so I love that oh go ahead well I, I'm just saying the you know the two parts what is happening in the world how then shall we live and there is some great and articulate mystery that is speaking to us. How then uh, shall we shall we live? And I'm thinking about um, a visit that I just paid to um, to the elephant in uh, in Tula Tula, uh, which is a preserve in South Africa that was started by a man. Um, Lawrence Anthony, who was called the Elephant Whisperer, who did extraordinary things. He saved the animals um, in Saddam Hussein's zoo when the war broke out. Wow. And um, he was also a go-between between the Lord's Revolutionary Army in Uganda and... Um, and, and the United Nations, when they were trying to create a peace between the government and this theoretically incredibly violent uh, rebel group. And he was there trying to save uh, the rhinos. And he found himself uh, being called to be a mediator. That somehow his understanding of the natural world and and the animals in it qualified him to mediate between warring parties. And he did it quite successfully. Um, so I was at Tula Tula and there was a herd of elephants that he was called to give asylum to. And he spent some time with them. And um, it's a long story, but he died and I wanted to go to meet with this herd that had been in such relationship with him. And when I went there, I realized that I had to um, meet the matriarchs with the same respect that I would bring to the leaders of any community. And because I wanted to be within the herd. And I couldn't just, as a 
human walk in and say, well, here I am. Yeah. Right? Of course. So what did you do? Well, so I told the guide that I needed to do this and that I was bringing offerings and, and that I, there were prayers that I wanted to say and how might we arrange it? And he said, well, you know, you can't impose yourself. And I said, oh, yes, I do know this. So we just stopped um, in a place where we thought they might be. And um, after a period of time, they actually came. And um, Frankie, who is the matriarch in training, to Nana, who is the matriarch and therefore the leader of, of, of this herd, because she knows the ways. She knows the land. She knows where the water is. Um, so that makes her a matriarch, but she's getting old. And so now there is this matriarch in training who comes in only when there's a situation that Nana won't take care of or, or can't. And so Frankie came up to us and spent maybe 20 minutes surrounding our, our truck, her tusks quite available to my hands if if I wanted to touch them, which I left it to her to be as close or far away as, as she wanted. And at one point she came around the truck and she looked very fierce. And the guide said, be careful. She, she's, she's a little itchy at times. Uh-huh. And I looked in her eyes and that's not what I saw. And I heard her say, do you know how hard it is to be the matriarch of a herd when we don't have any water anymore? When I can't provide water for the little ones. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And yet also incredible connection yeah yeah so you talked about compassion and empathy we were we were together in the grief and she knew that i knew as a human that i was responsible wow yeah so i well, Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no. no. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> the answer to how then shall we live wherever I turn, the answer is one that you know so well, you speak about it, in relationship. We must live in relationship. Absolutely. And, and, for me, Dina, relationship feels like the key to everything, you yes. know, and, and it's relationship and healing that go together, right? Because just as, as I hear this beautiful story about your encounter with the matriarch and training, 
Um, I think, right. So she knew that you know you're responsible and, and that we have fallen out of relationship with ourselves, not only with the earth and with the elements and with the creatures, but of course, you know, we all are complicit in some way. We're all products of a culture that has taught us to value things more than relationships and or many of us are anyway and and so we're all in recovery from western civilization really <laughs> yes cellist and, thank you for exactly it. it's such a great <laughs> title dear cellist yes yes and and uh you know i'm so mindful as i i increasingly turn toward racial justice work because really i want to work towards helping create the relational infrastructure for the movement of women and the men who love them to stand together on behalf of, of the sanctity of life. Um, and, uh, and I see that we are all dealing with, we're all factionalized. We're all dealing with these false separations. And that, you know, in the world that I walk in, there have often been gatherings that blow apart because of, people's um, cultural wounds and sometimes their multi-generational wounds and sometimes they're well my wound is worse than your wound you know and sometimes they're about power and privilege and you know the clearest thing to me about privilege is that it creates blinders in everyone who has it and it's hard to see the impacts of that privilege if you're the recipient of its benefits um and that's true whether it's men or white women or white people in general. Whoever's, whoever's benefiting, you know, in the tilted room is who gets blinded by it. But, um, but the truth is we may imagine we're benefiting from it, but uh, our systems of bias are hurting everybody. And, and there are ways in which I believe as a as a, a white person, quote white person, right? Because race is just a construct. That uh, we've been deluded into imagining that there are benefits, when in fact we've paid a pretty hefty price in terms of our humanity. So how then shall we live? Feels to me like we reclaim our humanity every chance we get, and try to inspire others to do the same. And change. And change, you and bet. And be change. willing to change. That's right. Change. That's Let right. our minds change on a, on a cellular level. Sometimes I have trouble with the word healing because it implies a certain power that we can do something about a situation. And very often we want to do something but stay in the life that, become accustomed to and so when we're not changing anything and so it may be like putting a bandage on the wound but if 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 we're not living in entirely different ways in life aligned ways then i don't i don't think any healing comes i think that's an illusion well i think you're right and i think the question that raises for me is, what are we willing to risk? 
Right. You know, in order to, in order to, um, you know, I don't know that we can ensure a livable planet for the future. I don't know if we can or not, but I do know that in whatever short life I have, I'm sure want to give my energies and my love and my attention and my care in every way that feels true and right for me to helping that happen. You know, um, and, and I think, you know, you and I had an email exchange where I was saying the question of bodily safety is coming up for me these days. Uh-huh. Like, what am I willing to risk? And, and looking at, you know, those people who stood probably yourself included in the civil rights movement and really risked violence and danger on behalf of justice. Um, and, and I find myself approaching that orientation um, differently now than I have ever in my life before and, and realizing, you know, what good is money going to be if there isn't drinkable water? Right. Right. This, and this... It, it seems kind of absurd to me when I hear people talk about their retirement accounts. <laughs> yes. It's a little hard to relate to. Like, where is the world going to be? that they're going to retire to. Well, you know, the question that you asked in that exchange was what, what were you willing to risk your life for? I think that's how you put it. And the question that came to me was, what are you willing to live? Are you willing to live fully? Because somehow even risking our lives is easy, but to live fully and truly in the ways that you have learned over the years one needs to live, that requires such an extraordinary shift. In part, it's sort of like Terence and Sandra um, in the novel. Uh, They have these two beautiful houses. He built his With his own hands, she found the perfect house. Both thought they would be happy in in these houses on this land. But when they meet, they go immediately to a tent that he had set up behind his house. And that's where where they live. Because even our, our notion of house and wall, um, enclosure, uh, could not hold the life they wanted. She needed to live with the wind. And so the changes are more profound than we can imagine. They really are, Dina. And I think I loved that that piece that you're talking about and, uh, and her relationship to the wind in that way. And, you know, Listening to you, I find myself really thinking about um, something that's been important for me in my life has been finding and living into my, what I understand as my soul purpose. Uh-huh. And, you know, I realized um, when I turned 40, and it was around that time that I came and did a workshop with you, and uh, 
I realized that my greatest fear in life was that I was going to get somehow die before I had fulfilled my sole purpose. And that if I didn't get on it fast, that might happen. And, and am I not right in remembering that you were just moving toward fully taking on uh, women's leadership? That's right. It was the birth of, of a kind of calling for me. Yes. You're absolutely right. And there has been much evolution in that path since then. But, um, but you know, what I, what I think about in relation to the how then shall we live, there is something, you know, I feel like most people don't have any idea how fulfilling it is to feel like you're on your path. You know, I, I work with a lot of people who are looking for their path or they're unhappy in their work and they want to find something more fulfilling. Mm-hmm. But there's something about doing exactly what you're born to be, mm-hmm. to do, that is, to me, the greatest joy I can imagine. And I don't even know if joy is the right word. It's so deeply fulfilling. It's like, oh, I wouldn't trade my life with anybody's. And... I don't think I could, you know, Um, but, and I wish that for a lot more people because I think that's how, that's how to live now, you know, is to be so fully in service and in love with what you love most in this world and this life and to bring yourself to it in as many dimensional ways as we know how, um, without fear but with you know i i feel like there is always a choice that we're all making every second of every day of where to put our attention and of course we're living in a time where there is a lot of uh distraction and a lot of media energy going towards filling us with fear and with false stories and with all kinds of chatter and uh in a way, I feel incredibly blessed that Bioneers has situated me amidst a community of people who really are living through their heart's love of the world and in a way that is investing in a future environment of hope, which is kind of a long shot these days, but nonetheless possible. And if enough of us believe in it, and if enough of us can really change our internal orientation, as you say, and worldview, I believe we can still get there. But we don't have a choice of living that way. Because we don't if have a choice we of don't living that choice. way? Because if we don't live in the ways that we're called to, the planet and our, and our descendants and all the beings will surely die. But we do have a choice, Dina. I mean, I agree with you. They will surely die. And... And there are a great many of our relatives dying every day yes. right now. Right. So, so we are in a, in a time of cascading extinctions and incredible right. loss. Right. Um, but we do have a choice. And there are a lot of people who are choosing, you know, it's, it's a question of whether beliefs, what you believe and how you cultivate yourself to live in this world is a choice or not. I, on some level, I think we always have a choice, even though 
we all have a lot of cultural training and a lot of habitude and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of entrained thinking to get over in order to change. You what know, do you think? Do you think we have a choice or no? I don't have a choice. Well, no, I agree. I don't feel like I have a choice, I, but I know I do. I see. I don't <laughs> feel I have a choice. Um, yeah, I, who, I don't either. Who were you speaking with? You were speaking with Terry Tempest Williams' husband, and his name escapes me at the moment. And he yes. said to you, our lives are not our own anymore. That's right. His name is Brooke Williams. He's a wonderful, also, yes, nature writer. Yes. Yeah. And I feel that way, too. But I feel like that's part of, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting, um, <laughs> there's, there's this great word from, from archetypal astrology that's called multivalence, right? That everything has its light and shadow. And I, I think that that's one of the aspects or one of the um, uh, uh, results of living in your full path is that there's a way that you get guidance and you just have to do it. Right. And the path opens one way, but not another. And so you go that way. Right. Um, and, and the earth, you know, for those of us who are listening, I, I do believe that the natural world is speaking loudly and in so many ways. And so if we're listening, um, that helps give us a lot of guidance. For sure. But the elder who said to you that they chose their elders by the ones who could receive guidance, and I assume the implication is, and follow it, that they received. Yes. 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 They received. Of course. <laughs> right. But and, they were the best at receiving guidance, was right. what he said. And, yes. and I would add, and probably the best at then following it, not thinking they had a choice about whether they would follow it or not. And maybe I'm arguing for a way of thinking in which we give up this desire for choosing, like choosing to destroy the world or choosing to save the world. No. Stop it, you know. <laughs> I hear you. And really, in a sense, what I hear you saying, Dina, is, is can we lay down our hubris? Yes. Can we, you know, can we give up our arrogance, our human arrogance, this, this notion that we're the smartest thing out there? I mean, really, uh, given our success rate at, at developing civilization so far, I would say there's not a lot of evidence to support that. So, and, and as, as you say, with the elephants, you know, and, and we know with, with whales and all kinds of other ancient creatures, there is so much wisdom. What I love that Janine Benyus says, who is the godmother of biomimicry, you know, she says, nature creates conditions conducive to life. Mm. And the teachers for how to do that are all around us. Yes. It's every aspect of nature. And if we could only still our busy minds and that hubris arrogance that thinks we know the answers and really pay attention to how to do things differently, 
and and humble ourselves before the the ancients um, who life has proven how to live then then that would be our best way through right I think I'd like to end this conversation with um, some words from your forward because they feel like they're so appropriate at the moment. And it has to do with the moment when you heard Petucci Gilbert of the Acoma Pueblo uh, speak. And um, he says, essentially, 500 years ago, you, the white people, came and we welcomed you with open arms. If you came again today, we would do the same. And you were Stunned, you say, my jaw gaped with wonder, awed by the forgiveness, inclusivity, and equanimity that man expressed after so much harm and violence had been loosed upon his people. That began my apprenticeship. These were the first words in this essay that I underlined. Then I went back and underlined more. That began my apprenticeship as I realized that indigenous cultures, rituals, and life ways contain keys not only to our planetary ecological survival, but also to the evolution of our conscious awareness as human beings. And we have to apprentice ourselves to wisdom. I think that's the way. I do too. I do too. And, and not forget the value of ritual and prayer and visualization. And, and yes, and relationship with all, with all beings, with, yes. with the elephants and the whales and the trees and the winds and the light, all of it. Yes, and the yeah. mushrooms and the lichen. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah. I think so, Dina. What a joy to be with you. A great pleasure. Thank mm. you so much. Thank you, Dina. I so look forward to being with you soon. Me too. Bye-bye. Bye now.